So this is a new thing we're doing, right? Yeah. We're going to call it what? You came up with the name Joel's Joints. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good name. Or Joel's Jams, or something equally as strange. <laughs> <laughs> I think Joel's Joints. Or catchy, it's very catchy. Joel's Joints really good. Um, because there is so much music out there that, apart from just being great music, has also got a little story around it. There's tons, you know that. You know, look how many records we're kind of sitting around in this room. Uh, every record tells a story, and you know, whatever genre it is, you know, whether it's the producer or it's there's a. I'm going to try and pick ones that have an interesting angle to them. Maybe it's slightly um, unconventional to, to that artist, or it's something that we've never issued, or a, just just something that's got a bit of a history behind it. Yeah, okay. And an interesting tale. Tell me a little bit about your history because I know you from sort of bumping into you in record shops, and of course the um, phenomenal work you've done with Quiet Village and and little Thanks. strange bits and bobs that you do but tell me a little bit about your entrance in the music scene and stuff well um, I mean I started out as a film editor after I left school mm. I mean I was always obsessed with music it was always music and film for me and then I went to work as an editor in the film business didn't quite work out I, you know I did it for about eight years and there basically was a lot of competition where everything changed and went digital and my love was cutting film by hand. So I decided to kind of follow my heart and get involved in the music bins because I thought I might make slightly, you know, a bit, bit more money. Um, and there seemed to be more scope. You know, I went away travelling and... Um, music bins? Oh, business, sorry. Okay. Um... <laughs> Where was I? I'm getting all confused now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Joel. Right, where were we? Uh, okay, so, uh, I was an editor for about eight years, always tinkered around with music. Never made it, though. Okay. Always would kind of, you know, uh, be out digging from, from day one, once I got into hip-hop, and I discovered those Ultimate Breaks and Biggs records. Was that the entrance? That was the catalyst for me. Ah. And I started going to charity shops. And what record shops were you going to in London at the time to get your incredible Breaks and Beats? <sighs> Well, I mean, I lived in Kent, ah. uh, but I was all—I spent all my time once I discovered Soho. Mr. Bongos. Uh, bon yeah, that, that was slightly later on. Right. But when I first started going up to town to buy records, which would have been 85, 86, I was going to Tower, Virgin, Groove Records. God, Tower. And we all remember those those glory days. If we would have, you know, known now what we know then. But do you remember Tower Piccadilly Circus when it came in? Tower Piccadilly Circus, right? And they had all the Japanese. Cutouts, all the blue notes, Unbelievable. vinyl everywhere. It was like the word just spread. Go to Tower. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really know through my kind of you know um, uh, love of hip hop. I understood about you know I got into jazz fusion, so I knew about Grover Washington and Roy Ayers and people like that. But I hadn't kind of gone as far back as you know the, the blue notes and the prestiges. So I missed out on all of that then because I was about you know thirteen. Not that really made, should have made a difference I, I kicked myself but you know I remember going up to the jazz section in Tower and you know buying two copies of Bob James 2 and things like that and thinking it was incredible and it really was at that time wasn't it and going down to the soundtrack section and buying John Carpenter uh, albums soundtrack section really God, yeah, that's all right. those all the early house 12s yeah which was all uh, imported by uh, you know and kind of sourced by Hugh uh, Bowles who then went on to kind of be manager of Mr Bongo and I went to sh I went to school with them, 
So, you know, there's a connection everywhere, really. So that was your sort of musical education record shops, picking up the music. But when did you actually start recording music? Round about, not until about 2002. <clears throat> and I was friends for, you know, since the mid-90s with uh, another school friend who was slightly older than me, Matt Edwards, who obviously records as Radio Slave and Records. And we went on to do the Quiet Village stuff. And Where, Matt, did, you, where did you meet him? Uh, weirdly enough, I met Matt uh, through mutual school friends. Um, I was introduced to him. We were all going to Metalheads, and we met in the car going on the way up there. We, you know, we all got a lift, and we discovered that we had a lot of similar musical tastes. He was into kind of you know, Chica old Chicago house, more obscure stuff, and we were both into kind of you know had the whole electro hip hop thing. And I kind of at, at that particular time, I'd been sourcing loads of old library records which we've had a big discussion about before on the show. And I kind of, you know, Matt being a bit of a beathead and really obsessed with samples, which I admittedly wasn't at the time, because Matt had been making music for quite a few years in uh, South London, had a little label. And I started playing him these albums on KPM and Conroy, and it completely blew his mind. And, you know, we kind of used to hang out in his studio and kind of play records to each other. And he'd play me house records and whatnot, and I'd play him these library things. And it wasn't until literally six or seven years later that we kind of decided, you know, he he kind of got up to speed himself as an, you know, he was engineering his own music, which he wasn't at the time, and he was in a position. The technology had moved forward enough that he could kind of produce music himself, and he'd moved down to Brighton and made a bit of a, you know, career for himself as a, as a producer and a DJ. And I, you know, I had some tunes lying around, and I said let's muck around and try and do an edit and then it turned into production and then I was going down regularly for you know a few days at a time you know to his home and we'd work in the studio and it just clicked but it wasn't something I ever thought I would do because I never considered you know I was a bit of a you know I loved listening to I was obsessed with sample based music but it wasn't something I ever thought I'd have the patience for or, or the interest in and then it all it all changed <laughs> I've got electric, <laughs> electric current running through me. Excellent, Joel Martin. Um, so I tell you what we should do. We should um, play some tracks, and I think we should just sort of. Well, anyway, what's this week's track? Let's play a track today, and um, and and discuss it because I can see it's a Hank Mobley song, and I just did a thing. It's really weird. You didn't, putting a Hank Mobley track in here because uh, yesterday I was recording a show and I do a little thing which is like I call it make a build a blue note and it's uh, and it's basically um, kind of creating a band of blue note artists to celebrate 70 years of the of the, of the label this year and um, and I put Hank Mobley on there and it was the second the third show I've done like that the third mix and it's the second time I put a Hank Mobley song in there and I was like oh, that's interesting that I'm keep coming back keep pulling out the Hank Mobleys and I'd read the book of his I don't know if you read his, his the biography that came out last year and um, and he was not really respected Hank Mobley within the jazz world not really taken seriously because no. he was too popular yeah, that's the first thing I was going to say it's not someone you hear people talking about Train and Rollins but you never hear them talking about Mobley he was kind of the second wave really wasn't he yeah and I don't think he, he I think it must and I, and I played a track yesterday off the um, what's the album called I think the one which has got the Eiffel Tower in the background slightly later oh that's on the yeah that's on the the Liberty Blue Notes right yeah um, oh. early 70s it's early 70s it'll come to me I know exactly the one you mean yeah good record actually and um, it was just beyond a sort of No Room for Squares era anyway you've reached for the Hank 
and you've come up with um, East of Brooklyn. East, what, East of Brooklyn. What it's, is that? Is it a Blue Note one? Yeah, it's a Blue Note. It's from 1967. Okay. And it's a slightly different mix. Um, it's from a Japanese-only CD. Right. It was never issued. If yeah, it was never issued as an album. It came out in the mid 90s. And the album's called Poppin'. But it was basically made during the 1500 series. And What's the 1500 series? The 1500 series is the classic Blue Note. Is is the first. It's not. I think the first series is the 900 series. Please, I've got to get this one. And the second series uh, is as in the Art Blakey Night in uh, Birdland, etc., etc. Yeah. And the second wave is the 1500 series. So that's kind of all the classics. Yeah, of course, I knew that. I'm just testing it. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, I'm just. Were you really? Sean P, where are you? <laughs> Sean wouldn't have to refer to notes. Please don't say that. You don't keep that bit in. Um, and um, six albums were released at the time in the same kind of period. Um, Peck in Time, the self-titled albums, etc., etc., etc. And it's kind of unusual because the front line includes uh, a lot of people that didn't work with him, like Art Farmer on trumpet and uh, Pepper Adams on baritone sax. Uh, and it's just a killer rhythm section again. Um, you know, Sonny Clark on piano, um, Paul Chambers bass and Philly Joe Jones on, on drums, of course, who played with him many times. And East of Brooklyn is kind of the best track on the album. It's just a wicked um, hard bop workout. And it's, but it's just something people don't ever kind of, you know, there, some of those Japanese only blue notes, as you know, are fantastic. Um, you know, and uh, you know, the, the kind of Bobby Hutchinson and various ones, and they kind of don't really get ex much exposure. So um, I think it's time that we kind of, you know, locked a little joint. I think it's great that we're celebrating 70 years of Blue Note. Makes sense, right? Hank Mobley. So that's our track for this week. Next week, what you got for us? Steve Winwood, uh, obviously of Traffic, um, and something that you would never have thought would have come out of his um, kind of world is basically sounds like Atmosphere. Don't say any more. See you next week. See you, guys.
Thank you. 